Hey guys, it's Michael Iliopoulos, and on this week of Life in Northern BC, on April 28th, 2020, we will be looking at a book many of you are familiar with, 150 Years by Alicia Elliott. To explore the meaning in these 10 stories a little bit further, I have chosen an Indigenous art form expressed by an Indigenous artist to represent each of these 10. I'm looking forward to reading your comments about my choices, plus any suggestions you have on how to show the meaning of these stories to others. But first, I'd like to acknowledge that today I'm speaking to you from the traditional unceded territory of the Clayt Laitene, and I'm very privileged to live, work, and study in Prince George on this land. So, let's get right into the video. So the first story is called Anne of Red River, which is uh, an indigenous woman who marries a white man, and the friend of the husband makes racist jokes, and he later puts it into the newspaper, and then the husband just brushes it off while the wife is upset. And therefore, the indigenous woman beats the friend out of revenge. So the media that I chose to represent this story is a video by Dr. Thomas King, who is of Cherokee descent. In quotes, I'm not the Indian you had in mind is a spoken word short story that challenges the stereotypes of First Nations people in the media. To all of you watching right now is being encouraged to really look at the ways that these incorrect and stereotypical representations of First Nations people in the media are shaping the views of Indigenous peoples as a whole. So I'll be playing that clip right now. I'm not the Indian you had in mind. I've seen him. I've seen him ride, a rush of wind, a darkening tide, with, with wolf and eagle by his side, his buttocks firm and well-defined. My God, he looks good from behind. But I'm not the Indian you had in mind. I'm not the Indian you had in mind. I've heard him. I've heard him roar. The warrior wild at the video store. The movies that we all adore. The cliches that we can't rewind. But I'm not the Indian you had in mind. I'm not the Indian you had in mind. I've known him. Oh, I've known him well. The bear-greased hair, the pungent smell, the piercing eye, the startling yell. Thank God he's the friendly kind. But I'm not the Indian you had in mind. I'm that other Indian. The one who lives just down the street. The one you're disinclined to meet. The Oka guy. Remember me? Ipperwash? Wounded knee? That other one. The one who runs the local bar. The CEO, the movie star. The elder with her bingo tails. The activist, alone in jail. That other Indian. The doctor. The homeless bum. The boys who sing around the drum. The relative I cannot bear. My father, who was never there. He must have hated me, I guess. My best friend's kid with FAS. The single mom who drives the bus. I'm all of these. They are us. So damn you for the lies you told, and damn me for not being bold enough to stand my ground and say that what you've done is not our way. But in the end, the land won't care. Which one was rabbit? Which one was bear? Who did the deed and who did not? Who did the shooting? Who got shot? Who told the truth? Who told the lie? Who drained the lakes and rivers dry? Who made us laugh? Who made us sad? 
Who made the world Monsanto mad? Whose appetites consumed the earth? Wasn't me. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. For what it's worth. Or maybe it was. But hey, let's not get too distressed. It's not as bad as it might sound. Hell, we didn't make this mess. It was given us. And when we're gone, as our parents did, we'll pass it on. You see, we've learned your lessons well. What to buy, what to sell. What's commodity, what's trash. What discount you can get for cash. And Indians, well, we'll still be here. The real one and the rest of us. We've got no other place to go. Don't worry, we won't make a fuss. Well, not much. Still, sometimes, sometimes late at night when all the world is warm and dead, wonder how things might have been had you followed, had we led. So consider, as you live your days, that we live ours under the gaze of generations watching us. Of generations still intact. Of generations still to be. Seven, seven forward, seven, seven back. back. Yeah, it's not easy. Of course, you can always go ask this buck you like so much, this Indian you idolize. Perhaps that's wisdom on his face, compassion sparkling in his eyes. He may well have a secret song. A dance he'll share. A long lost chant. Ask him to help you save the world, to save yourselves. Don't look at me. I'm not the Indian you had in mind. I can't. I can't. Want to get a latte? Vera said no. So the second story in this book is called Tilted Ground, and what this one is about, it's about a white man in the government who comes to First Nations land to see their way of life, and although the chief is skeptical of his motives, he does allow the man to immerse in their culture. He appreciates their way of life to the extent that he even fights for their rights and ultimately becomes a chief there. So the media I chose to represent this story is an interview with Bo Dick, who is an Indigenous artist. He discusses the meaning and importance of reconciliation between different cultures so they can understand and take care of their cultures and together take proper care of the earth. So to reconnect 
something that we might describe as reconciliation, to reconnect with the Creator. No matter what religions we profess, you know, it isn't always apparent that we have that connection with the Creator. Uh, our connection with Mother Earth and our responsibility to protect it to live in harmony with our fellow beings and most of all I guess probably the notion of reconnecting with each other as humans but my job here at the university is is to uh, open minds to have a different view and uh, use those views as tools for uh, enlightenment and understanding what uh, all of this means. I was happy to carry the, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, message. We are all one uh, with us, no mute. Yeah, we are all in the same boat, and uh, the coppers are still alive. And they'll be continued to be displayed and showcased. And there'll be a book put out about them. Uh, open your mind. Open your heart. You know, open your eyes. Open your ears. And, uh, sort it out. Uh, investigate. Uh, be an activist. Don't just sit there complaining. Do something. So the third story in this book is called Red Clouds, and it is about a man who lives in a village on First Nations land. And he is known for healing people and helping people and being able to cure them of uh, the spirits inside of them. And the police are now wanting him and a couple others who helped him for murder, even though they don't really realize that they're actually healing people. The courts then order them to death. Um, and in this story, I was really captured by the idea, um, of traditional medicine and there being a healer in the traditional sense and how that is underappreciated or simply not recognized by Western medicine. To represent this, I chose a video that shows a First Nations story called The Lily Root. In this story, an elder from a First Nations community asks his grandson to dig up a lily root from a pond that they are passing so they can use it in the medicine for the boy. The boy is struck by the beauty of the lily flower, but the grandfather wants the root. It takes the boy a lot of effort and energy to get the root, which is really stubbornly in the bottom of the pond. When he finally gets the lily root and gives it to his grandfather, the grand the grandfather cuts off and discards the flower and tells his grandson, although everyone wants the flower, it is the root that will make him strong and healthy. So the lesson in this was for the younger boy to not be taken in by the pretty things in life, but instead uh, to value the things that can be helpful. So this next video will show that.
This is an Ojibwe story. The Lily Root. Emily Muskrat was 10 years old. She lived with her family on a reserve in Manitoba, north of Lake Winnipeg. Emily had a younger sister named Hattie, whom she often looked after. Emily's father worked for a First Nations organization as a community health worker. He visited First Nations communities to help develop local health programs. Emily's mother was a teacher's aide at the local school. Emily took care of Hattie on Saturday afternoons when her parents went to town to shop for food. One Saturday, Emily was playing Cat's Cradle. Hattie watched her weave the tiny string between her two hands. As Emily continued to create designs, Hattie said, Show me how to do that! Hattie pointed to the cradle between her sister's hands. Emily replied, Spread your hands and fingers. Emily wrapped the string around Hattie's thumbs. Move your fingers like this, she said as she showed Hattie how to wind the string between her fingers and hands. It was not easy for Hattie to make a cat's cradle. While Hattie struggled to make a cradle, Peter Crane rode his old bicycle past the girls. Emily made a face at Hattie when they saw Peter because Peter often wore old and worn-out jeans when he played and rode his bicycle. Neither girl spoke to Peter as he went by. As the two sisters were playing, old John walked along the path by their home. He saw the two girls playing Cat's Cradle. Hattie showed Old John her first cat's cradle. Old John smiled and waved the girls over to him. Old John spoke softly to the girls. I'm going to tell you a story, he said. It is about the lily root. He motioned to the two girls to sit beside him on the small bench. Old John began his story. One day, Shomus, used in certain Ojibwe-speaking communities to mean old man or grandfather, and his grandson were walking in the bush. They came upon a small river with a big pond. Shomus saw some water lilies in the pond. He asked his grandson to get him a lily root. Lily roots were important to Shomus. When he dried the root and ground it into powder, it became medicine. Shomus would use this medicine to keep healthy. His grandson removed his boots and socks. Then he rolled up his pant legs. When he stepped into the pond, he felt the mud ooze between his toes. Shomus stood on shore and pointed to the lily plant he wanted. When the boy reached the lily plant, his pants and legs were wet and muddy. The oozing muck from the bottom of the pond was smelly and dirty. He reached into the water quickly to pull out the root. 
Be careful, Shomas told him. You must not break the root when you pull it up. The medicine will be spoiled if it is taken from a broken root. When his fingers were around the root, his grandson gave a hard yank. Nothing happened. He put his other hand around it. Be careful now, instructed Shomus. When he yanked the second time, the boy's shirt became wet with the muddy water. But the root still did not move. The boy could hear his grandfather on the shore. Reach deeper with both hands, said Shomus. Very slowly, the boy bent over the beautiful white lily flower. He reached with both hands for a better grip around the root. His shirt sleeves were soaked. He pulled hard. The root refused to budge. Finally, he realized he would have to get all wet with the muddy water. It still smelled. He held his breath. Quickly, his face went underwater. He bent right over the plant with both hands deep around the stubborn root. He pulled and pulled. When the root came free, he almost fell over in the water. He walked back to shore to Shomus. He was wet from head to toe. His skin was itchy. Mud covered his feet, his pants, and his shirt. He carried the lily in his muddied hands. At one end of the plant was the beautiful white flower. At the other end was the muddy root. As Shomus cleaned the mud from the lily root, he hummed softly. <laughs> then he cut off the flower. He looked at his grandson who stood beside him. He was wet and muddy. His clothes smelled like the muddy pond. His toes and feet were still slippery with mud. Shomus laughed at the sight of his grandson. <laughs> Shomus held the lily root very gently. This will make me feel strong and healthy, he said to the boy. Next to Shomus, the beautiful white flower lay discarded on the ground. The root is more important than the flower, he said. Many people are interested only in the pretty flower, he said. Remember the lily root. Hattie and Emily sat quietly next to Old John. They listened carefully to everything Old John told them. The story was over. Old John stood up. He patted Hattie on the head and walked away. Emily and Hattie walked to their house. They, too, would remember the lily root. Way, hey, ah, way, ah, hey, ha. 
This recording is a production from Aboriginal Affairs and Northern Development Canada and is based on its publication within The Learning Circle, Classroom Activities on First Nations in Canada, ages 4 to 7. The next story is called Peggy, and Peggy was an Aboriginal man who fought for the government against the Nazis, and he became a war hero who had 378 recorded kills. Uh, However, he developed PTSD and lung disease because of his role in the war. When he returned to Canada, though, he was not appreciated whatsoever for what he had done, and the government said no to his request to buy things for his horses. The video I picked to represent this message of the story is a spoken poem called I Run by Melanie Monunger Williams, who is the first ever Indigenous Australian Poetry Slam champion, and she won with this very powerful poem. The words of I run and the way that Miss Williams says those words made me think of the, the effect of PTSD that can happen when the white culture disregards the beauty and contributions and the humanity made by First Nations people. I like to call myself a runner, because that's what I do. When life attacks me from all angles, like I'm a paper bag in a thunderstorm, I run. I run from all my problems, tune out all sounds of day and life until the only sound I'm left with is my feet hitting the tarmac, carrying me away, my heart thumping deep within the lonely, hollow cavity of my chest. I run. I do fun runs and marathons to escape cyclonic turmoil, run through rivers in the hope my scent will get lost in the currents. But like a black tracker, my problems find me. They chase me down the way white authorities chase down brown-skinned babies, hold me captive the way this country holds asylum seekers and taunt me, the way my abuser does despite me already. Leaving the scene of that crime, I run. I run through beautiful boundaries that segregate real from true, run into a blur of horizons of sadness and the gravitational pull of a woman going mad. Nice girl to bitch, good guy to asshole. The cycle posing the same question as what came first, the chicken or the egg? And the answer, no one really knows. But personal perspective tells me the nice girl came before the asshole who created the bitch and now I'm stuck with trying to run from her. That beat down beauty, suicidal psycho caught between a western white man's world and ancient Aboriginal antiquity. I run. I run to the hills and sing my praises to my inner child because she reminds me of the beauty of a rainbow in the rain, the excitement of mud between my toes, the happiness of life's simplicity. She is the first pearl in my ocean. I run to the ocean where all my tears from years past have collected, knowing that if I blow it a kiss, the least it will do is wave back. And if I'm lucky, my salty sweat from all that I have run from will one day bathe me clean. The next story is called Rosie, and Rosie is an Aboriginal woman who stumbled upon a white man who wanted to trade her something for an emblem her dad made for her. The man had asked for Rosie's name, and Rosie said her name, and he asked again, but for her real name this time. 
She said she then said her traditional First Nations name, and he thought it was make-believe and started calling her racist names instead. This story made me consider the importance of names in First Nations culture and made me think about the movement that is currently happening where many First Nations people are reclaiming their First Nations identity by reclaiming their traditional names. To re represent this story, I chose a CBC radio interview that was done with a Mohawk reporter. For many years of her childhood, the reporter had been called by her traditional name, Kanalashio Deer. However, because her parents wanted to make her school experience easier, they changed her name to Jessica. It is only recently that this reporter decided she would no longer go by her English name professionally and would instead reclaim her traditional name. In this interview, she discusses the ways that reclaiming her First Nations identity through her name has impacted her life. While I recognize this is a CBC interview instead of a creative art piece, I decided to use it anyways because the way the, that the reporter describes her name journey and the reason she made this change is very vivid and explains her point of view in a really powerful way. So here you go. I find how people get their names to be such an interesting thing. And a few weeks ago, a reporter at CBC Indigenous made a big decision. She announced she would no longer go by her English name and posted a video. For the majority of my journalism career, I've used my English name out of convenience. Um, just really wanting to avoid those administrative hassles. But I'm putting that negative attitude behind me because I'm incredibly proud of my name. I love my name and I'm really excited for other people to, to start using it. That's Gunasio Deer and she is with me now to talk about it. Welcome to the show, Gunasio. Thanks for having me. You've been working as a journalist for years, uh, going by your English name, Jessica. So why did you decide to use that name at work? I felt like it wasn't really my decision or it, it just goes back to high school. When I was in elementary school, I went to a Ganyagaha immersion school. So from four, three to four years old until I was about 12, you know, I, I went by Ganesio. My parents called me Ganesio, my friends, my teachers. When I got to high school, my parents registered me under Jessica, you know, thinking it might might be easier because I went to a, a an all-girls school in Montreal. Mm. And... Um, I remember being so mad about that and like looking back, you know, I don't I don't blame them, but I, I remember feeling so upset because it just felt so weird. Um, it felt weird to, you know, write your name and your and the date on, on an assignment or something like that as Jessica. It felt weird to be to be called Jessica because I wasn't sure if, if if they were talking to me or the other like 12 other Jessicas. <laughs> right. But I was always going to see you in my personal life, my, my friends and my family. And then Jessica was like on paper and in school and then on paper and in work. And it just didn't seem right because I've always preferred to, to be called going to see you. It's just such a beautiful name that I'm really proud of. And I wanted to, to finally start using it in, in journalism and for, for new people I meet um, and, and the indigenous people that I'm, you know, covering and interviewing for work. I want them to know that name too. So why did you decide to make this change now? I think it, it, it was just, it was that weird feeling of of more people knowing me as as Jessica than Geneseo, where mm. when I was younger, it was the opposite. So can you tell me about how you got your Kanyakahaga name? I was actually named by my grandmother. <laughs> 
I guess when she saw me <laughs> and I had this like soft blonde hair mm. and big chubby cheeks it reminded her of a cabbage patch at all <laughs> and um at the time like they had a new line of dolls that instead of like the wool hair it ha- they had like this nylon hair and they're called corn silk kids <laughs> so that inspired her and she chose the name um which um, means fine silk and seo comes from the w- root word for beautiful you know, beautiful or fine and nice. And ganhes is the the, the word for ribbon in Ganyakeha. And, you know, often like ribbon was made out of silk. So that's how she got my name. <laughs> I'm so proud of my name. I love my name. You know, I want to honor like my, my grandmother who named me. And for me, it really is an act of language reclamation. Like so many people in my community, including my own family, we've been affected by you know, Canada's colonial policies and have endured, you know, intergenerational traumas like language loss. Mm. Um, I I know of at least one great grandmother who went to residential school, but even Canada's Indian day school system has such a long legacy in Mm -hmm. Like The schools operated for 120 years. My other great-grandparents went to day schools. My grandparents went to day schools. My parents went to day schools. And actually, many of my older cousins, because the, the, some of the schools operated until 1988 in, in Ganyuwage. So you posted a piece online called Ganyuwage, Why I'm Reclaiming My Ganyuwage Name. Uh, and it's, it also has a short video that, uh, that accompanies it um, that we just heard a clip from. So how did people respond to the video? I'm, <laughs> it's been great seeing it in a CBC byline and hearing colleagues and people I'm, I'm reaching out to for interviews, you know, hearing them say it is a small, small step, but it's, it's so empowering and motivating for me to like kind of get back on that track mm-hmm. to try to be a fluent speaker again. So you talked about this name change as being an act of language reclamation. Uh, and now in this way, you are teaching people, you are teaching people, right? A language every time you're introduced, which I think is like, that's so powerful. What does it feel like for you? Yeah, it's awesome. Because I, I think, you know, I think my colleagues, um, you know, in the Montreal Bureau really kind of understand from from covering um, Ganyakahaka communities that like, K's are kind of pronounced like G's mm-hmm. in the language. I hope that encourages people to to pronounce things properly mm-hmm. you know other words and other names and I've been trying to be really conscious of of other people like other Ganyakahaga people that I'm that I'm interviewing or just other indigenous people like even if I know them by their English name like to ask them hey do you want to use your Ganyakaha name or how do you want to be referred to as mm-hmm. um, just, just because I know them by their English name they might you know they might have been like me where they they preferred they preferred their Ganyakaha name mm-hmm. So I know it's only been a few weeks, but, you know, do you wish you had made this switch sooner? Oh, so much sooner. Like, it just felt like I wanted to do it for so long, but I was, I just kept putting it off. And, you know, it was, it wasn't as scary as I, of a process that I thought it would be. Like, I, I got a new email, which is awesome. Like, small things that when you look at the big pictures, like, it's not, it's not as important. (laughs) Well, I think it's a great thing that you've done, and I think it'll probably encourage some other people to maybe take the step to reclaim their real name. Thanks so much for chatting with us today about this. 
Thanks for having me. Gunasio Deer is a Ganyukaha reporter with CBC Indigenous. She joined me from Ganawage. You can see her video and the Cabbage Patch Kids that inspired her Mohawk name on our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved. The next story is Nimki. This is a story where a mother and daughter were sitting down at the dinner table to talk about the mom's childhood, and she started discussing how she'd been in an orphanage until she was picked up by a family who needed an extra farmer. The family treated her very harshly and made her work for food, water, and shelter. One day, Teddy, a boy a little bit younger than her, showed up for the same reason that she had been there. They became best friends and helped each other make life enjoyable whenever they could. They decide to run away together and try and start a new life. When they were running away, they were caught by another two farmers trying to eat some food from their barn. They took them against they took them in against their will. The mother was able to escape while Teddy was left behind as he could not get out. Teddy shortly after was killed by the farmer and was taken away by the government. At the end of the story, there is a big group of First Nations people who stuck up for themselves and created a rebellion and stood in front of farmers saying, you will not take any more of our children. This story made me think about the impact of residential schools, not only on the individuals who actually attended the schools, but also the impact on their broader families. The song Reeducate is by a hip-hop group compromised of Indigenous rappers and vocalists. The song looks at the ripple effect that residential schools left behind and that is still being felt today. As I ran for home late that night With fear in my eyes Running away from the white A voice from above said Avoid that misguiding light So I run for darkness Now I feel so alone I see the lights of my village And I'm almost home Too late, we're stolen from homes Kidnapped from families I'm looking for answers to why your God can't stand me I'm only eight Mind frame is too small to comprehend the word hate I'm so innocent I swear this has to be a mistake So I'm led to believe in your organized religion So God wants you to molest Little native children Family separated, children molested and abused And this is stuff that you'll never hear on the news How they stole my ancestors' future from the reservation And us kids sent to boarding school isolation I'm so lonely, what message is the creator trying to send? I'm so cold, so lonely without a friend Sitting in this white man's world, doing my best to blend Children sent to a world of hurt, what a destination Keyword for the government was assimilation Canada's true history has yet to be told So me and the kids wrote the song so the truth will unfold Humiliation for so many nations It's time to re-educate the new generation The past was hard, but the future's for the kids The way of my people is how I'm gonna live So much humiliation for so many nations It's time to re-educate the new generation The past was hard, but the future's for the kids The way of my people is how I'm gonna live 
I'm growing older now, forgetting my tradition Got locked in a closet cause a nun said I never listened I was hurting many times from the priest and nuns Spoke my language the last time cause they stuck a needle through my tongue I never did nothing, I never started trouble So why's my backside always seeing a belt buckle? We were kidnapped, slapped, separated and hated Every day I was called a dirty little native Why am I called a savage? Why am I treated like a beast? I'm just a young child that forgot the word peace I wanna run away from this residential school Cause every day it's destroying my mental views On family trust God but most of all love It feels like no one answers me when I look above But I made it, I got to see my grandchildren go This stuff's been bottled too long And I think the world should know that we're still alive They'll never destroy our spirit I hope you don't just listen to this song I want you to feel it Cause we were here in the beginning We'll be here till the end So thank you for listening I mean, hi, so many nations, it's time to re-educate the new generation The past was hard, but the future's for the kids The way of my people is how I'm gonna live So much humiliation for so many nations It's time to re-educate the new generation The past was hard, but the future's for the kids The way of my people is how I'm gonna live The next story is called Like a Razor Slash. This story was about where in 1920 how the government signed a treaty saying how the Northwest Territories was First Nations land. The government now wanted to build a pipeline through that land that the government already said was owned by the First Nations. After many legal battles, they ended up deciding that the First Nations land was going to be kept the way it is and the pipeline would not be built. This story made me think about the politics and the emotions that the Keystone Pipeline was, has raised in First Nations people. Because the Trans Am Canadian Pipeline was going to need to run under native lands, a political battle started between Indigenous groups on one side and the federal and provincial governments on the other. The controversy has been in the news a lot lately, as the current U.S. president has taken a stand against Keystone to prevent the American involvement that would be necessary for the project to go forward. I found a song called Oil for Blood by the First Nations hip-hop group Nike Nula Wan. The lead rapper is using vivid imagery to describe the concerns of the First Nations about the Keystone pipeline for nature and for the tribal well-being. Red, dead, red, dead, red. 
First off, I send love to Lupe for giving us hope in this Lakota Sue. All red, everything, Red Nation rising. Revising our story, they're televising. Child of the planes, I see 2020. Poverty porn, TV pimpers for money. Tell Diane Sawyer, I am a warrior. Give me your camera, send pal to your lawyer. Free all my people, get them out of prison. Take them to Sundance, show them how we're living. Give youth an outlet, disadvantage prodigies. Feed these Republicans all our commodities. Put them on the res from the day they're born. They won't survive cause their cancer is airborne. Put them in our schools, put them in our shoes. Take away their money and give them our booze. Red, make everything red. Words of my ancestors up in my head. Food for thought, our kids underfed. Your oil is mud, they want the earth dead. Oil for blood, oil for blood. Making you rich, you soil my love. Oil for blood, oil for blood. My mother is clean, that oil is mud. Keystone, everything's red. Pipeline, now everything's dead. Keystone, everything's red. Pipeline, now everything's dead. Everything's red. Everything's red. 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 Dead. Red. Dead. Red. I can't afford to leave the res. Government has got me trapped. The leadership need a tip. And most of my tribal leaders whack. They don't want to hear that. They just want to chill. I'm sick. I'll go to IHS and get a pill. Like a song without a title. Yeah. Feel forgotten. Like slaves picking the kind. Forever tribal. With no connection to the Bible. Flying. People writing. Sometimes I'm suicidal. Feeling like no exit. Generation X shit. Text messaging. Sex. What I connect with. Technology. Get this world to acknowledge me. My ancestors studied numbers and astrology. Like the philosophy, keep them haters off of me. Keystone XL, you smell like an atrocity. To my home and my ancestors, I'm loyal. Build that pipeline and I'm burning down your oil. Oil for blood, oil for blood. Making you rich, you soil my love. Oil for blood, oil for blood. My mother is clean, that oil is mud. Keystone, everything's red. Pipeline, now everything's dead. Keystone, everything's red. Pipeline, now everything's dead. Everything's red, everything's red, 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 dead, red, dead, red. This next story is called We Remember It. This story is about a First Nations unceded land where First Nations were fishing for their food and the government classified it as overfishing the lake, even though all of it was on the land that legally belonged to the First Nations. So the police came in and started being quite racist while they started cutting all of the fishing nets. 
The First Nations then began discussing with the police how it was their own land and how they cannot be doing that. The next day, there was police with riot gear and weapons, ready to, to defend what they thought was the right decision. The First Nations drew a land in the dirt and told the police that they couldn't, couldn't cross it. They then ste stepped over the line. This story made me think about the environmental cultural impact on First Nations when the Canadian government decides to impose its own rules on the use of land by First Nations people. The government has a history of taking, selling, and developing native lands without the right consultations of First Nations who use these lands. In many cases, these are also unceded lands. The hip-hop group Red Nation created a song called Take a Stand that specifically asked the First Nations to act to protect nature from government abuse. And here is that. Affecting all Canadians and all First Nations Now we must fight and let our voices unite Until we're one nation, one tribe, one light Time to rise up, time to take a stand Time to rise up 
Our next story is Warrior Nation, where in 1990, Elijah Harper, a First Nations Manitoba elected government representative, effectively prevented the Meech Lake Accord from being passed due to the government's failure to include Native peoples' involvement development in the Accord. This was one of the first First Nations to wield sufficient power in the government in the Meech Lake Accord. This made me think of what it takes to be a peacemaker and how painful that journey can sometimes be. The song The Peacemaker is Born is on an album by Joanne Shinanado called Peacemaker's Journey. Miss Shinanado is a member of the Wolf Clan, which is part of the Iroquois Nation. She is a very well-recognized First Nations artist who has received more Native American music awards than any other Native artist, and have won many other music awards, including a Grammy. The Peacemaker's Born is a beautiful piece of music that brings to mind the journey of those who try to bring different sides together. And I'll be playing that right now. It's gonna love Going to Luna Glide Always Glide Negane Yota Wait on Yato Go
The last story in this book is called 2350. This story is set in the year 2350, where the First Nations are the only ones still living on Earth. A young girl is sent back in time to various First Nations efforts during the 2010s, including the Standing Rock protests, and she experienced and saw people from different First Nations across Canada coming together to help the Sioux in their efforts. The song I chose was Standing Rock. And I chose this song because it talks about the support for Standing Rock protest across different First Nations and different social movements. Thomas X is a rap artist from the Red Lake Nation in Minnesota and is part of the Ojibwe Nation.
So that will do it on this week of Life in Northern BC. Hopefully you guys enjoyed. Um, make sure to leave some uh, things in the comments that you think I should have used or, uh, or anything about my choices in particular. So have a great day and be safe with COVID. Uh, see you guys later.